Welcome. This is Jessica Ortner, and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Hi, friend. I'm happy that you're here. I just finished interviewing Dr. Kelly Brogan, and I feel like I'm going to be obsessing about this interview all day. I'm going to be thinking about it all day tomorrow because it was so powerful. It was so personal. If you are suffering at all with anxiety or depression or any physical challenges, you want to listen to this interview. It's it's mind-blowing. It really is. I was incredibly moved Let me tell you a little bit about Kelly before we jump in. Kelly is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own, and she is the co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. She has a new book that just came out called Own Yourself. Now, this is one smart woman. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University or Cornell Medical School. And she also got her bachelor's from MIT in systems neuroscience. So this isn't someone who just took a weekend workshop and is teaching something new. This is a woman who really studies and looks at the research and really discovers what can make the difference. I loved talking to her. It's a much longer podcast than than the normal podcasts because I I didn't want to stop the conversation. I just felt like everything that she was saying was so fascinating. So I hope that you enjoy it. Real quick, have you downloaded the Tapping Solution app yet? What are you waiting for? You're probably listening to this interview on your phone. So take a quick moment, go to the app store, put in the Tapping Solution. You'll see the app, download it for free. Immediately you get access to 10 free tapping meditations. You can upgrade if you'd like, very reasonable, and you can get access to hundreds of tapping meditations. But if you don't want to, I'm telling you guys, these free tapping meditations, especially the one on releasing anxiety, it is so powerful. So it's free. It's powerful. What are you waiting for? Download the Tapping Solution app. And if you have a friend who you think will benefit from this, they're having a hard time, you've wanted them to try tapping, this is a great way to introduce tapping to them so that they can get immediate results. So just tell them to go into their app store, put in the Tapping Solution app, download it for free, and enjoy. All right, guys. Well, I hope that you enjoy this interview as much as I did. So guys, we're jumping right in because... I'm here with Kelly and we're chatting and I think everyone can probably relate to this. We're talking about how we can't stay up late anymore, right? So I went, I was telling Kelly, I went to Marie Forleo's book launch party last Monday and I stayed out until one o'clock. It was the first night ever staying in a hotel without Enzo. It was Mm. like big night out for me. It was amazing. I still, every time a truck went by, I thought it was Enzo. And I would jump out of bed. Like, I'm so used to any sound. Like, you just sleep differently when you're a mom, right? You're just, like, so aware. And then yeah. I got sick for the first time. On Friday, I was, like, sick as a dog. And, like, thankfully, I know so much stuff. It's, like, I feel like when I get sick, it just only lasts 24 hours now. 
Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, I can't, I can't, I'm, I can't stay out late anymore. <laughs> it's just part of the, it's part of the self-care mandate that starts to rear its head around, I don't know, like early thirties and you can ignore it for a while. But <laughs> I found in, in my forties, it becomes far less optional and far more consequential for me to, uh, to try to try to stay out late and party. I don't right. Know. And you were out late last night and you were reminded that it doesn't work. <laughs> right? It's amazing. I mean, it literally feels anytime I go to bed after 11, it feels like an immense hangover. It's just a sensitivity. I mean, it's what I've noticed about so many things and I'm sure you can relate, you know, as you move into um, sort of like understanding your body's needs, you become exquisitely sensitive to all of these things that you could have gotten away with, you know, whether it's like a food exposure or toxic exposure or even, you know, like sense, like I, I used to come home from the club in med school and I would spray my entire outfit with Febreze because at the time people smoked indoors and then just like sleep with it crumpled in a pile next to me. If I have like one molecule of Febreze enter my <laughs> nose, I feel sick. I have like a headache and I feel nauseous. Like it's just the sensitivity becomes um, really amplified. So I not a bad thing, I guess. It's not it's definitely not a bad thing because this is the other side of it is that I think before we were more conscious, we just felt like crap all the time, all the time. but we didn't even notice because it was normal for us. Like it was our baseline was fatigue, that's right, depression and anxiety. Like that anxiety. was just yeah. our normal. It's so true. I remember I, um, I used to be tired all the time, all the time. It was such a, just a struggle to get through the day, especially during my training. And so I used to drink, uh, six cups of coffee a day, every day. And in Manhattan, you know, there's like the trucks. So these little like coffee trucks are everywhere. And this was during my um, medical school and uh, early training, like internship. And I remember when I was a a resident, I started to get like um, palpitations and racing heart. It was really uncomfortable. And I actually had it fully worked up by a doctor at the time. Like you, you wear this thing called a Holter monitor where they monitor your heart rate for 24 hours. It was like a whole thing. And I was prescribed a beta blocker, which is, you know, a not inconsequential um, cardiac medication. And nobody ever asked me, oh, by the way, like, do you drink coffee? Maybe like more than a cup a day. I was literally, you know, wired on caffeine. And I'm imagining that was a major driver since I've never dealt with that since I quit coffee in 2007, like way before even I change the rest of my diet or anything else. And it's just amazing. You know, if you don't connect the dots, like you said, you just live in this, this haze of, um, disconnection and it becomes normative. I was speaking to a friend who's in a, a functional medicine doctor. So he's an MD and he specializes in digestive health. So he gets like some of the worst cases of people who've just had horrible gut health and, and stomach pain and just have been suffered, suffering for years he was telling me that one of the top surgeons when it comes to intestinal challenges yeah. doesn't ask you what you eat. That's right. Isn't no. that ins- I heard that. I was like, no, <laughs> literally they're focusing on intestinal health and there's nothing about diet. Like how it blew yes. my mind. Because it's a mechanical model. And if you look at it as a tube, 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> then it's not super relevant what's going through the tube. But, you know, of course, as you know, it's just so common for highly outdated medicine to be practiced in in the average conventional doctor's office. It's it's just not the system is not set up for there to be um, any incentive to really update on shifts in in what's often called like consensus practice. It's just everybody's doing it because everybody's doing it. And they're so overwhelmed as physicians that they it's unless you get sick yourself. That's the only reason that I went back to the books was because I got sick myself, uh, you know, and that's why I wanted to learn about how to help myself beyond what I was taught in medical school and residency, which I wasn't interested in, you right. know, a lifelong, lifelong prescription. Yes. So you have a, a new book. Congratulations. I read it yesterday. <laughs> Thank you. Called um, Own Yourself. And you are really helping those who feel like they're suffering with depression and anxiety and fatigue, which seems like everybody has that nowadays. I mean, mm -hmm. I almost feel like if I'm not on top of it, yeah, it's just so easy in this world with this lifestyle that's to right, feel yeah. overwhelmed. And there's a lot of self-medication, whether that's, um, you know, taking prescription drugs or recreational drugs or alcohol, or sex, food, online shopping. It's like we live in this world where we're constantly trying to to numb ourselves because a lot of us are in pain. And, and I think where I'd love to start this conversation is, can you paint a little bit of the picture of, you know, you have a lot of people coming to you for help. Can you just show us or just kind of tell us what you're seeing, paint the picture of, of how people are suffering and really just the problem? Yeah. So there are a lot of layers to it. And, you know, one of my favorite contextual quotes is by Krishnamurti, where he says, that it's no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. And I think that there's thankfully an increasing awareness that so many of our systems are bankrupt, you know, whether it's our economic system, political system, educational system, um, you know, our relationship to the environment, our educational system, and of course, our medical system, you know, that we are really in a, at a point where almost all of us have a sense that we are not going to be well served and delivered to a place of health and wellness through our conventional doctor, despite, you know, his wonderful intentions and, you know, compassionate um, care, that the system itself is not set up to meet the emergent complexity that, you know, we're facing. And so I think that there are certain people who are more sensitive uh, to the reality of all of the ways we are living out of alignment. And again, you know, that could be on a physical level, that can be on a sociocultural level, you know, living in kind of modular homes, women raising babies by themselves um, without the very important contribution to our nervous system of the experience of community or tribe, you know, or whether it's out of alignment with a, an understanding of nature as something more than a source of, um, you know, uh, utilitarian resources for us, you know? And there's so many ways that, that, as you said, pain can be um, generated from these levels of disconnection. But I think that there are certain people who are very sensitive to it. And they're sensitive to it on a macro level, like all the things that are wrong, 
but then they're also sensitive to it within relationship dynamics. And then on an individual level, they're sensitive to, you know, processed food. They're sensitive to, you know, fluoride in the water. They're sensitive to uh, 5G networks, you know, being um, set up and Wi-Fi and their cell phone. And they have these um the expression of the sensitivity is in the form of what we refer to as symptoms. And we have been telling these individuals for many, many decades that something is wrong with them, right? That they are sick, that they are broken. And often they feel that they are, right? They have this secret belief that something actually is wrong with them. And then they have the symptoms. Right. And then they have the seeming evidence of this, right? And then once the doctor gives them a diagnosis, you know, out of the ICD-10 handbook and writes them a prescription, there is a moment where they feel validated. They feel seen for their struggle. But it's um, it's like a, it's kind of a poison apple, right? Because the truth is the framing of it, in my experience, is is totally different, where these individuals are properly responding to things that are very off, very wrong. Their sensitivity is expressed in a way that they've never been taught to, you know, interact with, right? So they've never been taught the language of their body. They've never been taught that symptoms are meaningful, that they are, you know, me telling me about me. <laughs> That's what a symptom is. It's, uh, I believe, um, a very, very meaningful guidepost to the the kind of attention that's necessary to rebalance. And only you can figure that out, you know, and obviously I, I'm here to provide general guidance, but in the end, it's the activation of this inner compass, um, that, that leads people what, what I've been told so many hundreds of times home to themselves. Like I, I remember after maybe, I don't know, must've been the 12th or 15th patient, um, years ago who said the same phrase to me. She, she said, you know, I just, I finally feel like myself. Mm. And I thought, well, who, I didn't know you wanted to feel like yourself. What do you mean? You know, I thought you wanted to feel like strong and beautiful and powerful. And it's, it's really not true. We want to sink into our own skin with comfort. We want to begin to inhabit our essential authentic self. And it has a signature energy to it. You know, when you, when you get to that place of realness and you just let the mask fall, but we need to provide a context for these individuals, right, um, who otherwise would think of themselves as being chronically sick for life. Because what I found is that when these individuals learn how to take their power back, basically, and learn how to be in their bodies um, in in a way that feels like a reunion, you know, then their their power is immense, immense and their gifts are extraordinary. And these are really, I've found, I mean, I was, I was on Instagram yesterday and looking with, um, with Sayer, with my partner at, you know, this, this unbelievable painting that, um, this woman who worked through my program created, it was just like breathtaking. And then I, you know, click over and, and Serena Ryder, who's a, who's a musician artist, you know, she did uh, kind of a video testimonial of her journey out of the mental illness, this sort of um, psychiatric guild. And, and here she is creating this unbelievably beautiful music. And it's, it's like the, the bird is freed from the cage. And these people have, have tremendous gifts as artists, as visionaries, as healers. Um, and it's really, you know, those who are going to help us see how to get out of this mess, 
you know, because it's certainly not going to be the doctors and lawyers who are going to figure it out. (laughs) Right, right. Well, I definitely know what it feels like to just want to crawl out of my own skin. And for me, my drug was food. So if I ever felt um, just overwhelmed and uncomfortable, I would just start to, to binge eat. And that was my escape. And it's one of the reasons that I was attracted to tapping, to be honest. One of the things that I learned about going through my own journey was that I was always trying to suppress my feelings because I felt like they were too big for me. You know, it was just too uncomfortable to sit with them. And what I was really reminded of when I was reading your book is how the biggest shift I had was to not try to make my symptoms wrong. Like, Mm -hmm. so the symptoms weren't what I, the emotions weren't what I needed to fight and suppress. It's what Mm -hmm. I needed to experience. And it's the same when it comes to physical pain as well as emotional pain. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, about what's the difference between suppressing and trying to fight these symptoms and what's it mean to, to be with them and accept them? So we don't have any cultural context for challenges, adversity, difficulty, pain, grief, you know, it's a long list. Having any, um, sort of significant role in an individual's development and growth. Maybe on some deep, you know, level of knowing, we understand that, you know, kind of like no pain, no gain kind of um, idioms. But but the truth is we don't have cultural models for that because we're all too busy strapping our mask on as tight as possible and hoping that nobody ever sees what's behind it. And so we we go through life really curating elements of our personality from childhood that were consistent with whatever idealized child our parents set up for us to be, you know, whether that's athletic performance or academic performance or just compliance and behavioral submission. You know, we go through life trying to um, interact with others in order to please them, in order to, you know, sort of garner their acceptance. And my sense is that there's a point at which we start to feel like our soul rattling its cage. You know, we start to feel like something is profoundly missing and we might have the job and the partner and, you know, um, this, this inner deep wound um, is beginning to make us aware of it. And at that point, you know, it can express in all sorts of different ways. Um, you know, for me, it was with the diagnosis of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. For somebody else, it might be, you know, compulsive eating, like you said, or or, or for somebody else, it might be cancer. You know, we, we are delivered an invitation uh, often, um, you know, as early as our early 30s, something like that, where we sort of see there's a fork in the road. And we can double down on the control tactics that got us to that place and apply more force, more power, and more control to a situation that is feeling increasingly difficult to control. Or we can walk the other path. And the other path is, you know, I call it path of self-discovery. So the other path is to just let the mask fall and begin the process of understanding who we are. And that is terrifying. It's a terrifying process in many ways um, until you begin to to get these early wins of uh, what it is to engage um, this level of personal reclamation 
and reconciliation with all of the parts that you thought you'd never have to look at. But initially, it's very terrifying because we imagine that if if we um, turn towards these aspects of ourself that scare us because we imagine they're going to induce rejection, right, or abandonment, um, that something awful is going to happen. I mean, that's kind of the story that we we tell ourselves. And the medical system really, really dovetails powerfully with that because, you know, the medical system is predicated on this um, fear-based response to symptoms. You know, you better do something or else is the reason people engage the allopathic system and take medication because last time I checked, no one actually wants to take medication. You know, that's not, that's not a, a native desire. We do so because we feel that there's not another option and that the, uh, the, the consequence and potential penalty of, you know, simply exploring what's happening, asking the why, um, taking the risk that, you know, we imagine is there if we don't just make the symptoms go away, you know, that's a, it's a renegade act, um, in, in today's culture. So we're, but I think more of us are feeling that that option at least exists. And listen, when you're not ready, you're just not ready. You know, when it's too scary and you just need, um, the symptoms to go away and you just need relief and you don't care, you know, about um, what cost that might represent to you, then that's where you're at. But yeah. you, know. you don't need to add the extra shame, right? That doesn't no, get I us mean, anywhere. It's, it's it's not something you can you can force or even cultivate the readiness. It just comes when it's when it's when it's there to to arrive. And I've found that um, there's so many layers to expanding consciousness and to growing our capacity, as you said to um, sit with complex emotions and scary emotions that, you know, if you're open to the possibility that this kind of growth and healing exists, then you're going to know when you're, when you're ready. And of course, that's what I've tried to provide is, you know, a bit of um, a roadmap to navigating that terrain. Right. One thing that you wrote that I, I really loved is you wrote that illness is often a reminder that the real you needs to be born from the ashes of your struggle. So it really is, there's, you know, whether it's struggling with your weight or a health issue or just anxiety and depression, I think there does come a, you you can't force it, like you said, but there often comes a moment when you're like, I just can't anymore. Like, I, mm-hmm. I just need to make this shift. And as we're making a shift, it's uncomfortable because the easy way would be to just self-medicate, whether it's with food or, or something else or drugs or whatever it is. There is like there's a space in the beginning, like you said, of sitting with your emotions, knowing that you're you're going to have to do the work. And yes, you can do things like meditating and tapping, which which creates so much relief. But it's nothing's a magic pill, right? Like it's all it's all a journey, right. and you need these right. support systems. What do you say to yourself when you're in that space? You know, when you're in that space, when you've decided, you know, what? I'm I'm not going to take the easy way out. I'm going to really look at this head on, even though it's uncomfortable. And there is a lag time between making that decision and finally reaching a place where your new normal is feeling better and feeling like you've created a shift. In that space in between, what do you say to yourself? How do you best support yourself? Mm, I love that question. I think you would agree that this kind of work is best done in community. 
Mm-hmm. And I have found that, you know, there's, there's something of a paradox because no one can do this work for you. It's an inside job. And at the same time, this work cannot be done alone, you know? And so I have found, you know, having a, a one-on-one private practice for, for many years relative to the online community, um, Vital Mind Reset or, or, you know, the newer one that we've created to support the people moving through the book called Vital Life Project, uh, is that the capacity for people to get into contact with a, with a faith and a trust in the in the leap that is necessary to take from the old story to the new story is so amplified when there are like-minded people around that I really think it's a, almost a non-negotiable element of this because otherwise our programs, um, you know, whether you call it the ego or um, the mind, you know, are so designed to maintain the status quo that it's almost like, you know, if, if the baby's coming down the birth canal, it's almost like you'd be convinced that you could push the baby up back into the uterus or something, you know, <laughs> like that's how strong um, these programs are that say, don't go there, don't go there, something terrible will happen, you know, keep, play it safe, stay small. Um, and I found that there's, it becomes, you know, that there's this like irresistible pull towards your authentic self. It's like a magnetic pull that at a certain point you can't resist any longer. And it's always there. So that going through the motions of the old way of relating to yourself becomes increasingly uncomfortable um, to the extent that you just got to move in a new direction. And how, how supported you are in that process is going to be the difference between, you know, an easy birth and a complex uh protracted, you know, protracted experience. But I think that, um, I think that the cultivation, as you said, with tapping and meditation, the cultivation of that witness consciousness of that watching eye is, is the, uh, is the goal, right? It's the intention of any sort of engagement of these kinds of practices, because if you can watch what's happening, as it's happening and you don't get swept up into fusing with the, with the emotion as the only reality and the story of what you're telling yourself in that scary moment, which is typically a victim story, um, as being, you know, the truth, if you can watch it happen, then you can grow your capacity to hold both the good and the bad, which I think is one of the defining features of adult consciousness, right? So no longer, do you identify as the bad person and all those good people out there have the things that you don't have, or no longer do you identify as the one who's right and good and somebody else is, is definitively wrong, right? So this black and white thinking gets resolved as we, as we move into adult consciousness and we're able to see, wow, even with pain, there's growth or wow, even with ecstasy, there's a fear of loss, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it all comes in polarities and that, that kind of uh, perspective on life helps us to interact with adversity through a narrative of, I call it maybe mind, you know, through a narrative of like, wow, this is interesting. And everything just becomes interesting, right? Because the reflexive story is no longer recruited because you're not sure what's happening and you're not sure 
that it's bad and you're not sure that it's good. It's just, it's just happening, right? So according to that witness consciousness, um, that anchors that, that maybe mind, you know, everything is, is okay. Everything is always okay. And we get into a lot of trouble when we fast forward into the future or we're lingering in the past. But, you know, I often say to my patients, you know, look around you right in this moment, you have four walls around you, there's oxygen, you're breathing, your skin is intact, you know, everything in this moment is, is okay. Right. Right. And it's your, it's your mind that tells you otherwise. I mean, we've moved into a culture now, especially with social media, where we're so used to having like an instant result, right? Like yeah. you, you update your feed, you th- see things instantly. Like you're, you're hungry, you grab your phone, two clicks, and you get food delivered. You yeah. need something and you go on Amazon and the next day yeah. it's there. And I find that we almost take this, that same mentality and we want it to work with our lives. We want to do something once and we want to get the instant results. We think, see things as either good or bad. And if it's not instant, then it's not worth it or, or something's wrong. I know one of the challenges that I had, you know, just looping back to my experience with, with struggling with my weight and with my food is since I was like probably 12 years old, I had the diet. Like I saw my mom diet. I saw people around Mm -hmm. me diet. And it, it was this idea that like, if you do this diet for, 10 days or 30 days or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, then all of a sudden you'll lose all the weight and then you'll be happy. And I would diet for a short time, but from a place of just anxiety and pushing. Yeah. Control. And control and trying to control and trying to, and seeing it very black and white. Like if I don't get this, if I'm not suddenly thin and get a boyfriend, (laughs) then it was a complete failure. And so I would always swing from like, I would always swing from a diet to binge eating there was never a progression. There was never any kind of experimenting. It was all it was all black and white. Now the so one of the things I really try to address through my work and my book is how this diet mentality just doesn't work. It's incredibly destructive. And it just doesn't work. We know it. We've done it before. Yet this is the other thing is that we know that we have to change the way that we eat. Yes. And that it's yeah. not just about a fad diet, but it's about tuning in and seeing how food is not only impacting our weight, but how it's impacting our moods, which no one talks about, but like it literally is impacting the way that you feel. So the one thing that I always find challenging, and I'm always trying to figure out how to explain this better, is when someone comes to me and wants help, how to show them the difference between the diet mentality, which Mm. again, doesn't work, and the Mm. reality that we do have to make lifestyle mm-hmm. shifts and we might have to cut out gluten from our diet for a moment in time and see how we feel or, mm-hmm. or see our food sensitivities, but without getting caught into that emotional black and white, like anxiety and stress yes. that never helps us. Oh, I love this question. It's such an important question because, you know, in the in the functional medicine world, there's a term orthorexia, which essentially refers to, you know, kind of the, the fear of food um, yeah. in general and how you can get there through the intention to cultivate wellness and health in your life, where food becomes this minefield of good and bad. And, you know, my sort of response to that, because I would say probably a third of my practice over the years has been women who formerly identified as having um, some kind of an eating disorder. You know, what I have found is that 
healing the relationship with food is, you know, without getting, uh, you know, overly poetic or metaphysical, it is healing the relationship to the mother, right? So it's nurturance, um, it's receptivity, it's um, this experience of being deeply nourished by that all loving um, entity, right? So, and it extends obviously beyond the the physical human mother to to the earth itself. And, you know, you can call it the cultivation of the feminine um, relating to food in this in this way. It's um, it's a very sacred dynamic that has been corrupted and in many ways co-opted by our dominant culture that is really programming us to control um, all aspects of our fluid dynamic existence of our feminine, right? And so what I found is often, um, you know, a, a powerful path to healing is to work with our tendency towards um, control, Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that that's a reality, right? And to work with a templated structure um, for a period of time. And this templated structure acknowledges that there are foods that are frankly addictive and beverages, right? That are frankly addictive. And if we control for those, can we liberate you to begin to explore your relationship to food as a sacred relationship? Can you bring a level of loving attention to it? Can you expand your consciousness around it and understand it to be um, so much more than calories and proteins and fats and just this, you know, incredibly um, complex and even elegant, uh, you know, exchange with the natural world and the ways in which um, informationally, you know, you are, are reconnected to that. And there's incredible science, you know, this is not just sort of like a theory on um, exosomes and the passage of these little um, genome modulating packets, you know, from plants, for example, that are maintained through digestion and begin to impact our, our gene expression. It's extraordinary. Uh, but I have found, you know, I, when I used to be in, uh, con, you know, my conventional training, in in eating disorder treatment, it was considered success if a patient could, like, eat a pe- piece of pizza or a bagel or a donut and just be kind of okay with it, right? So, like, just have one, you know, don't don't purge it and don't avoid it, right? So just kind of be all right with it. But you know. We don't ask uh, people who identify as heroin addicts to just have like a bump here and there. You know, it's it's it just on basic biochemical um, biochemical level without recruiting any of the psychoemotional, you know, components. It's it's really Herculean task. I mean, when I used to eat conventional food, I remember sitting down. I used to eat almost every day two slices of pepperoni pizza, right? After work, (laughs) so you're getting a little window into my uh, lifestyle back when. Um, and I remember I used to take the first bite and have this feeling like I could eat 7,000 of these. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a tremendously vulnerable feeling that is unnecessary <laughs> to explore, right? Because the reason that it, I don't have that feeling in my, in my modern diet, because the things that I eat don't pull on my opiate receptors. They don't 
um, impact my my brain in the way that you know wheat and dairy do. They just they just do, and the reasons for that are, are decently understood. But remember that dairy, for example, is the is the lactation of another mammal, and it has these properties that are intended to um, promote and cultivate attachment, right? Even on a biochemical level. So the if we can limit that, you know, the the addictive foods and beverages for a short period of time, then you're really kind of liberated to relate to food first more neutrally, yes. right? It's just sustenance. You're hungry, you eat, then you're not hungry. And so a whole layer of emotional terrain gets exposed, right? As having been, as you said, kind of buff, buffered by um, this complex dynamic to all of these uh, addictive and inflammatory foods. And you, you know, you also begin at the same time to feel stronger, to feel clearer, and to feel just better in your body. So something in the alchemy of those ingredients, I think, sets the conditions for you to begin to explore from a place of personal empowerment how you want to more fully heal your relationship to food. And that involves um, transforming perfectionism, which is, you know, fundamentally a very um, self-rejecting quality, of course, because there's never, never a moment you arrive, right? Mm -hmm. You never get to that place where where you're fully loved and accepted. Um, and you can transform that through the intention to relate to your body, to yourself. I think through, I, I refer to it as a more sacred lens, but it's really just understanding that, you know, there's no war to win here. Um, and in fact, quite the opposite that turning towards the experience, being curious about it, forgiving yourself, understanding that, you know, there is, um, we're just learning that this is a process. But I do think that the bridge through a certain commitment to discipline is important. And so I do advocate for that one month ritual, you know, of self-care, but it's, you know, nutrition is one part of it, but it's really just sort of like, how do we foreground self-care in a way that feels fundamentally at odds um, with just kind of like jamming this quick fix into our lifescape and hoping that this time it works. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm so happy that you bring up perfectionism because I see it all the time. Someone begins to do a lifestyle change and then something happens. They eat in a way that isn't great for them and they go, well, what's the point? I can't, I can't do it perfectly. So I might as well just go right back to, um, you know, to self-medicating myself in, in these different harmful ways. And, and, and it even ties into your idea of before of this idea of like good and bad, black and white, and how dangerous yeah. that can be, where we constantly just feel like we're either succeeding or failing, and we're stuck, and there's no room for this, for this experimenting in this relationship. I mean, what came to mind too as you were as you were speaking about this was, I know that it's it's really 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 hard until it's not, right? Oh, so it's uh. like. That's almost why sometimes you need to have a certain plan where you go, you know what, for this amount of time, I'm going to try this because it is really hard until one day you're like, it's not that hard anymore. And you also, you're not so addicted 
to these certain foods that then you can begin to look at them differently and you can see, you can feel the difference. Like we said before, a lot of us felt like crap all the time and it was just our normal. So we didn't even know how bad it was. Sometimes right. you have to feel really good and, and kind of make these big lifestyle changes to then have the awareness of like, wow, that's not worth it anymore. And when it's not worth it, it's such a, it's such an easier and more empowering choice to not do those things that we were doing before because we can finally see the difference. Absolutely, and it's um, it's a it's a, it becomes a cellular memory, right? So it's if you burn your hand, you don't need to as a kid, you don't need to say, "Don't put your hand near the fire." Don't put your hand near the fire. Right. Make sure to not put your hand near the fire. Your your body has um, an engagement because of the lived experience, and and that lived experience is the only way that we change. You know, when I wrote my my first book, um, A Mind of Your Own, I thought, okay, well now nobody's ever going to take a medication again who reads this book uh, because they have the information. And of course, you know, I uh, went on to learn that that's not actually how you know, how expansion of consciousness works and how change works and how growth works, that we need to have a felt um, point of contact with a new mindset, a new paradigm, right, that has different tenets underpinning it in order for us to move into um, the the discomfort of, of growth. And yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's actually very, becomes very basic. I mean, I remember when I was, again, in that place where I was so, and this is so common with, with my patients too, where I was so not in my body and not aware of what was even, it's like missing was any sense that anything was missing, you know, like yeah. not even aware that, that things were misaligned, you know, I literally used to poop like once a week, once every two weeks. And yeah. I, I did not poop as a teenager. Like I, I feel like I went like once a week. Yeah, no, but even you, I guarantee that a doctor never no. discussed that with you, right? No or one. it's not something we were even taught. So I didn't know, you know, because, you know, my parent, we never talked about bodies and I didn't have any understanding of how, you know, what a healthy body felt like or didn't feel like. And so when I, you know, when I cut, um, wheat and dairy out of my diet after my diagnosis, literally it was probably 10 days that I started to have like totally normal bowel movements. And now 10 years later, literally, um, that's been the case yeah. ever since. All and right. so okay. I don't need to tell myself like, no, don't eat the cheese. I don't, even want, it's not interesting to me. I didn't even want it. I would never trade, you know, what it is to be in my body now, just the, the feeling of it. So that becomes the motivator exactly as you said it. I love, I love how you express that. Right. All right. Well, since we're talking about poop, I'm going to go there. When <laughs> okay. I was like, I don't know, 13 years old, I just would never go. And if I would go, it would be just really hard and painful. And so one time I started to get some blood so I had, I had had a cut down there yeah. and, I, and I went to the doctor. My mom brought me to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, well, you have a little cut. And I said, okay, what do I do? And she gave me a cream. And I was like, <laughs> okay, but why, like, can no I go questions. to the bathroom and stop cutting my, like, you know, like as a 12 or 13 year old, you I was know. sitting there going, this doesn't make any sense. Yes. Like, why oh, would you, why would you give me a cream when like the issue 
is that I'm having hard stool that's cut. And that's like our, that is our medical system. Yes. Like it literally it, makes no sense. They're like, here, take this cream. And you're like, but I don't, okay. And as a 13 year old, I knew it didn't make sense, but I didn't know what the answer was. So, you know, whatever you shrug your shoulders and then go, you know, hang out with your friends. But it's like, my God, it's, right. it's insanity. You had this, yeah. You had this intuitive sense that why would there ever be a time when I no longer need this cream, right? Yes. If we're not, if we're not addressing the cause, then this is just a bandaid forever. And it's, um, it is intuitive that we want to know why you yeah. want to know why mostly because we want to learn more about ourselves, you know? Um, and that's why I think, you know, quizzes are so popular now, for example, online, because we, we just have this voracious appetite to know more about mm -hmm. the mystery of who we are and what makes us tick and, you know, what we're made of. We want to know why. And we, I think, intuitively sense that we should be able to read um, the meaning of our, our symptoms, but we're so divorced from that. And it's, we're so disconnected from it that we need guidance back there. And I, you know, I learned this word recently. I really love, it's a Greek word, um, an amnesia that is, I think loosely translated into remembering something that was once known. And I think it, it's a sensation that many of us can relate to. It's almost like coming out of anesthesia. You know, it's almost like this sense of, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Of course. Yes. You know, and that's so much of what it is to walk the path of health reclamation is just to be come into contact with that deep inner knowing that is, you know, <laughs> very um, ancient. Yes. And to cut through the noise of our defensive adaptations that have told us, no, that doesn't exist. Don't go there and nothing to see here, you know? Mm -hmm. So, well, so I want to, I want to shift the conversation in a moment to talk about crying. But before I talk about crying, <laughs> we are talking about food. You know, people can pick up your book, own yourself and learn more about this plan and this journey that they can go on. But tell us a little bit, like, what are just some of the foods that, you find are causing the biggest issue, not just physically, but also just the emotional and, and psychological challenges? Yeah. So I came to this realm of holistic medicine, not because I had, you know, some interest in wellness or, you know, did a lot of yoga or was like, you know, generally somebody um, identified as being like, a hippie or a bohemian or anything like that. I came to it through the science. Um, every single aspect of everything that I practice, uh, in, you know, clinically, I came to because I read a paper about it or two or a hundred on PubMed. And so I began to learn about the relevance of two particular kinds of protein, uh, in wheat and dairy through the literature. And I learned about their relevance to autoimmune conditions, of course, because that was my personal journey. Uh, but I also began to, you know, wonder whether there was relevance to my patients who have been diagnosed with postpartum psychosis or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or depression um, or ADHD. And can can this matter to them? And that's when I 
began to uh, explore psychoneuroimmunology. So this several decade old um, branch of medicine that helps us to understand the connectedness between the immune system, the gut, the brain, and the hormonal systems. And what is the role of food in that uh, web? And so these, you know, the proteins in, in processed wheat and dairy have, I think, a decently well outlined uh, impact um, biologically mm-hmm. on, I would say it's almost a default assumption on almost everyone. And then your sensitivity to that symptomatically is going to obviously vary, right? And so, uh, you know, whether it's the in the promotion of intestinal permeability or what's sometimes called leaky gut, or it's, you know, just inducing brain fog and cloudiness um, without any gut symptoms at all, you know, we have literature to support this now. And, and so that was kind of how I started was just taking out those two categories of, of food and it changed my life in a couple of weeks. Um, but I am a big proponent that if you're going to self experiment in this way, uh, that you kind of go big or go home, you know, it's like, like if you're going to do it, then you might as well see how far you can shift the needle towards your optimal biological alignment in a month. And so there are, you know, other things that I think are worth um, removing in the potentially inflammatory and addictive realm um, just for that month-long period. And then they can be reintroduced, like even gluten-free grains, for example. Right. Um, And and then what happens is after doing that for a while, you go out and you stay up past nine o'clock. Right. And (laughs) the next morning you feel horrible and you go, oh, actually, now I remember why I go to bed early or you connect the dots. It's and, really, yes. yeah, it becomes a system until, and if we have perfect internal intuitive guidance, you know, we're going to continue to move outside of the realm of what's optimal for us at any given moment. And, you know, and this obviously also applies even to interpersonal dynamics and when we should be saying no, and instead we're saying yes. And, you know, we, we become more sensitive to the self abandonment, the self violation, um, And the connection is more clear, as we've been discussing, right? So I know that I may not be feeling 100% this morning because I didn't go to bed when I normally do. It's not a mystery, right? (laughs) Um, Whereas in in a cloudy haze of so many triggers and stimuli that are representative of a misalignment, it's totally overwhelming to try and unpack it. So this is really just a way to kind of clear the slate and begin to learn your own internal uh, messaging system. Yes. And then it becomes easier because then when you have that that late night or you eat something that doesn't sit well with you, going back to eating in a healthier way, it just it feels good because you already know the yeah. difference. So there's not the same emotional struggle or actually willpower. I'd say like that. Like now I don't feel like I'm using willpower to stay healthy right. because it's my new normal. When before it did take a lot more emotional effort. To do because it. yeah, because that magnetic pull has become so strong that it's it's an attraction rather it's an attraction towards something rather than a rejection of something. Even though yes. there is a moment where both are happening. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, I mentioned um, a moment before that I want to talk about crying, and that's just because I found it really interesting. I, I noticed 
often that when I'm working with someone and I'm doing tapping, that sometimes there's just a lot of crying or, or someone will mm-hmm. write in and say, I used your app. I did this tapping meditation and I just cried through the whole thing. I feel better, but is, is that okay? You know, like, is it okay to cry? And it was so interesting to, to read about how healthy crying is. So can you tell us a little bit about what's happening when we're having the, the physical experience of crying? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to note that we are apparently the only species on the planet that cries tears. Um, and there has to be some meaning in that, right? That can't be just like a a random arbitrary, uh, biological phenomenon. So, you know, I, I, I think that our, our emotional dynamism is, potentially our offering to this planet, right? And so we have been living in this very narrow bandwidth of personal expression where we, you know, we feel a little bit of one emotion that's uncomfortable and we we run away from it. And then, you know, we feel a little bit of an emotion that might be too expanded and then we run away from that. And so we don't contract, we don't expand and we just kind of keep the straight and and narrow. Um, but there are consequences to that, right? And and they are biological, psychological, emotional. And what I have found working with so many women who were medicated for decades, I mean, virtually 100% of the women that have come to me over the years have come to me on medication, um, ha- having made the choice at a time when it made sense to them to, to limit the feeling of... Um, vulnerability, I guess, that that came with whatever emotional terrain they were exploring uh, at the time. So as they come off of medication, sometimes they will literally go through a window of about two to three months where they are crying nonstop, literally nonstop, like going to the bank, going to work and coming to the appointment with me and just tears flowing constantly, just constantly on the verge of, of crying. And, you know, I could explain that on like a you know, very, very, um, you know, neuronal biology, you know, like what could be going on with the receptors, et cetera. But I actually think it's more compelling to consider, you know, that, that the, that the emotion wants to express and to stuff it just means it's going to be expressed at some later date. right? Yes. Like, And so, um, often it's very common on particularly antidepressants that, uh, there is a kind of numbing of, of the, the tear tearfulness capacity. And so I've witnessed that over years. It's been really fascinating to me. And, you know, the truth is that, um, when you analyze a tear, it's, uh, in, it, it sort of, um, biochemically it's, it's very different than like a sweat droplet or, uh, just a or water. Or even a tear, you, you, you wrote in the book, even the tears that happen when you're cutting an onion are very different exactly. than an emotional tear. Right, that there's our best understanding is the release chiefly of a uh, of stress hormone through the tears. So it's like a potentially a mechanism to help cultivate resilience as you are dealing with inner turmoil, um, and that it's not just like a biological function to you know sort of like a, a onion tear might be you know to to ward off any uh, you know sort of like eye intruders or whatever, you know, so it has this, um, somewhat mysterious, but increasingly well understood role in the, um, neuroimmunology of our emotions. 
And there's a researcher, Candace Pert, who was one of the grandmothers of psychoneuroimmunology. And she really helped to um, identify the ways in which emotions, she wrote um, Molecules of Emotions, her, her famous book, and the ways in which emotions are, are literally encoded in, in peptides and then travel and are stored around the body. Right. So this idea that you can have emotions packed into different tissues, um, potentially generating symptoms or worse, is is not just like a, you know, a concept that your yoga teacher might mention as you're doing like a pigeon pose. You know, it's it's actually very well evidenced over decades um, in the medical literature. And I find that so fascinating. You know, in the end, um, science can tell any story you want it to. Uh, there's, there's a multitude of, you know, myriad perspectives out there scientifically, but I, I really prefer this more, this more beautiful explanation and, and terrain for, uh, an understanding of what it is to be a human. It's, it's, there is science to support, you know, this, um, this different version of reality. And it just feels so much more fulfilling and meaningful to inhabit this world than one where the mandate is to, you know, keep it all together, function as highly as possible and do whatever we can to avoid that, you know, the other shoe dropping and and that, that horrible diagnosis coming out of nowhere, you know, like yeah. that's, it's a very difficult way to live. Uh, what yeah. I, what I really, what struck me when I was reading your book is the importance of allowing ourselves to feel the feelings. You know, you talk about the different ways that we we self-medicate and how oftentimes we're just going through a really hard time. We have someone we love passed away, you know, pass away or something horrible happens and we suddenly think, well, let me fix that. Let me try to like fix this. Right. And it can't, it can't, it's, you're grieving. It's, you're going through a horrible, you're going through a dark night of the soul. And it's not something that we need to fight. There's a a place for acceptance and moving through that. That is just something that we were born and meant to do. Life isn't black and white, and it's not about always feeling perfect. And when we give ourselves that freedom to feel, it's like we can finally breathe again. But it's like, we don't even really know what that means, right? Yeah. Like to, to say, to give yourself freedom to feel, I mean, I certainly didn't, um, until I began this work. And at this point, my greatest credential is, is not my medical training, but it's the fact that I have moved through, um, many dark nights of the soul, you know, in the past 10 years of my life. And particularly I would say the last five leading to really what I, what I, wrote, particularly in the third part of this book, is everything that I needed to learn, right? And um, I don't think I had any idea what it meant to feel something. That just seemed like more badness. Why would I invite that, right? And and, and what does that mean anyway, you know? Um, but I've, I've come to understand that there is a mindset um, and a, a kind of commitment towards a certain orientation towards life that is what creates the room for emotions to be allowed to exist because they, once be they're allowed, allowed to exist, yeah. yeah. Once they're, once you develop that muscle that, you know, allows you to be okay with not being okay, then you quickly learn that emotions transform within sometimes minutes, right? So if I am, 
you know, triggered and somebody sends me an email that makes me feel defensive and angry, or, you know, my partner says something that hurts my feelings or whatever, you know, if I get that feeling inside my body, right, where it's like tightness in my chest and a little racing heart and a feeling of kind of heat coming up my head, um, often there will be an accompanying sense of urgency that I have to communicate something, you know, in order to be right and perceived as right. So that's my shadow. That's my defensive structure. Now my reflex is not to go with that and make sure that I'm right about whatever is happening. My reflex is to literally drop everything and sit down, you know, and put my arms around my own belly, you know, around my own body and simply say things like, you're okay it's okay. Everything is okay. You're forgiven. You know, these Mm. simple phrases of self-soothing and I'll do that for maybe 45 seconds to a minute. And, and then I'll have an understanding of what is at the root. Am I feeling afraid? Am I feeling abandoned? Am I feeling ashamed? That's a huge one that drives so many of our entrenched defenses that ultimately result in our feeling even more isolated, you know, than we might if we express that vulnerability. And, and so it's really about coming into a, a new kind of a reflex, right? So I think this is, um, is never more apparent than in romantic relationships and in parenting, because I have seen the greatest sort of yield of my own growth in my, my mothering, um, where I've, I've, because of my orientation towards myself, I have been able to liberate my daughters to their own emotional experience. You know, I talk in the book about, you know, this, this, this one day that after this incredibly challenging move, interstate move from the Northeast down to Miami, you know, and I, um, am divorced. And so I, I was kind of down here, single momming it for a while and doing everything I could to set up this new life for, for all of us. And, you know, one night my daughter, who's, who is, uh, six at the time, uh, she just starts crying and every mom knows that like, you know, the, the frontal cortex goes offline at night and everything is just more overwhelming. And that's like that, that point at which you just, just need everyone to go to sleep. (laughs) Um, and she, she starts crying and she's like, you never asked me. I didn't want to move here. I hate it here. I don't like my school and I miss my friends and, and I want to go back. And, you know, inside of me, my child self is, is freaking out. Right. And, and she's mounting her, her defense, her defense, right? Like, you know, and if she could speak, she would say, how dare you? You're so ungrateful after all that I've done. You know, look how hard I'm working to make this experience for you. And you're not even, that's not even true. You love it here. And you do love school, you know, all of this, right? It was like a volcano inside me of defensiveness and this kind of storm of pain, resentment, anger, and fear, right? Like, what if she never likes it, you know, all of that, right. Catastrophizing. And so I, you know, it's sort of like in those moments, I know that I'm the one I have to soothe. I'm the one, not her. Yeah. And once I do that, you know, it's almost like this, I envision like my chest is like growing 
bigger sizes, you know, so that I can just hold the storm inside and that watching mind is narrating and saying, just let it be, just let it happen. It's, it's happening. You don't have to do anything. It's like childbirth. You don't have to do anything. You just have to let it happen. And that's very, very, very hard work. So it was all I could do to just put my hand on her back and say two words. That's all I allowed myself. Cause I knew if I let myself more, I would start to get to the defensive spiral. So all I said was it's, it's hard. That's literally all that I could get out of. That's all I could muster. Yeah. And then she, you know, she gets up out of bed. She goes to get a tissue, blows her nose, makes a joke about how she sounds like an elephant, gets back in bed and goes to sleep. Yeah. So, turns out I didn't have to fix it. She just wanted to feel a feeling. <laughs> uh, and how often do we okay. need to do that to ourselves? I, I've been kind of debating whether to share something. And I want to because I feel like it it works so well with this conversation. I had a tremendously difficult time after giving birth to Enzo. Like, tre- yeah. I can't even explain how hard it was. I, I can't even like go back to that place and, and start crying about it. Yeah. He, I had a 36 hour labor. He was wow. nine pounds, six ounces. And even though I was doing chiropractic and all the right things, he just was not in a good position. And I had the best team. I had the best midwives and they just let me labor as long as I could. And they finally got to the point where we had to do a cesarean. So you think about 36 hours of no sleep, of being in labor, which is back labor because he's hitting just my back. Then I have major abdominal surgery. Yes. Now my milk isn't coming in. And so they Mm -hmm. tell me that I have to just make sure that I'm nursing every two hours. He, he won't latch. So now I have to pump and feed him with a tube and a syringe. Mm -hmm. So I am sleeping after 36 hours of labor, major abdominal surgery. I am sleeping 20 minute increments at a time. I feel like I can't breathe. Like I just can't, I feel like I'm completely drowning. And there's also this instinct as a mother of like, you need to feed this baby. Like it's a level of anxiety that I've never experienced before. Make sure he's okay. Make primal, just primal anxiety. And so I went to the midwives and they did a test for, they have like a postpartum like A, B, C, or D. Like you figure out whether you have um, postpartum depression. Mm-mm-mm. I came out with a hundred, like, oh, like yeah. hundred postpartum, you have postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. My midwife sits down with me and she's like, listen, we just took the test and it, and the test is telling me that you have postpartum depression. I see what you're going through and you are just exhausted mm-hmm. and overwhelmed and, and it's a lot and it's really, mm-hmm. really hard and it's going to get easier. Mm-hmm. And yes. she really made it clear that if I needed medication, it was available, but mm-hmm. that she, that she kind of just said to me what you said to your daughter, it's hard. Like yes. it's, she just validated yes. how I felt. And with that, I mean, it's not that it became easier right away, but I really, it was my mother saved my life. And I mm-hmm. never knew. I mean, always had, my mom was always like a working mom. She's not, I didn't, she's motherly, but in a different way. I didn't mm-hmm. know how she would show up. And she showed up for me and my husband showed up for me and they saved my life. And honestly, if I didn't have their support, I probably would have needed something just to, I just, I was drowning, but I was able to, um, 
to just have the community and to be told that, yes, it is really, really hard. And I had to sometimes have my, cause, cause when you're not sleeping and you're, and you're in that place, you can't think logically, you know, you can't right. reason with yourself right. and to have my husband be able, like, first of all, again, I cried all the time, all day, all day I was crying and to have my husband just simply say, it's hard. And you feel this way because you, you haven't slept in yes. weeks and you had major, major abdominal surgery and your right. body is going through a lot. And just having someone reflect to me my situation, it was like all I needed to be able to take a deep breath in and keep going. I just needed someone to say, like, it's hard yes. and it's not going to last forever. And like having that support made such a huge difference and, and I went through it. But let me tell you, like, we don't live in a culture that that's not – a lot of women give birth and do not have support. And it's made me so passionate about helping other women and, and being there for even other friends that have even, even like really basic, like obviously we look at the, our institutions and we need to do better, but also just the knowledge of if I have a friend who's having a baby, I am sending their, them food. I am showing up for them. I'm doing their laundry. Like I am doing whatever I can to support them because we can't even imagine how difficult it is. And um, so I guess I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, but I think the, the biggest lesson that I learned through that experience is, is the importance of someone witnessing your pain and just letting you know, yes, this is really hard and I'm here for you is the only thing. And it just, it, it just sometimes you just have to go through it. Nothing would have made it better except just being, except showing up and experiencing that it's hard. Does that make sense? Right? Like those, if I I I searched for a solution and for instant mm -hmm. relief, I would have just been more frustrated. And you would have lost, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. And it's, um, I can't tell you, you know, how, 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 how many, um, women go through exactly what you've gone through. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, a I call it the time that the veil is thinnest, you know, postpartum, and you really get to take a good look at the scariest places in your psyche of self-judgment and fear of failure and fear of, you know, terminal loss. And it's, um, it's a kind of initiation. And even though it didn't look the way that you wanted to, you know, they're listening to, to your narrative. I mean, there is tremendous meaning that was yielded, you know, from your having had the courage to simply walk one foot in front of the other through that, that very dark window, not only meaning in your, the connections in your important relationships in your life being deepened in this way where you needed help, you asked for it, hopefully, and, and, and received it, you know, what is more important than that? Um, and now you have this empathic connection to every woman who is in that very sensitive and tender window that you could never have fabricated. You needed to live through it. And that's what I tell my patients all the time as they go through, you know, their dark nights is this is human training camp. And when you get through this training camp, you are going to be able to deeply connect to others in a way that this world needs 
this world needs because there's no faking it. We know, we feel when it's, it's not from a place of empathy, um, and lived experience and it be, it's harder to trust that. So, you know, yeah, if you had chosen to shortcut, you know, shortcut the, the teachings, if you will, and the, the reveal of the meaning of this experience, then, you know, first of all, not only would you have been in a population of women, and this used to be my specialty, um, who are medicated based on three randomized trials ever in human history in the postpartum period. So this is not evidence-based medicine. It's a, it's an assumption that that's, um, you know, a medically sanctioned offering that we are making clinical clinically available. And don't get me started on some of the newer, um, you know, pharmaceutical interventions, including brixanolone. And just like the way that we are responding to women who are meaningfully struggling um, at a time, you know, when there, there used to be an entire village of support, right? No matter what happened, you know, if there was a a stillbirth or a a perfectly healthy, you know, two hour labor, whatever it was, that village was there. That's the medicine. That is, and it's, it's not optional, right? So you may have this understanding, like, here's what I can do for a woman. And, and I think that's so beautiful and it's not enough. There's no way that we, I mean, I hate to be kind of doom and gloom about it, but we have to wake up to the reality that nothing is wrong with the women who are struggling postpartum. Something is gravely wrong with the context that they are birthing these babies into. And until and if we recognize that, you know, that hired help, that a wonderful husband, that a doting mother and a a lovely best friend, that's still not enough. Right. You can still be that, you know, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. It's still not enough. And there's no way our society is it's just not set up to provide what our nervous systems have evolved to expect, a certain kind of holding, a certain kind of transmission of wisdom, guidance, and not to mention literal support, right? So cooking, caretaking, so that all you do is take care of you and that baby, right? That's not our reality. And we're so um, asleep to what could be or what has been ancestrally that, you know, sometimes I say, you know, think about human history. Think about, I'm sure even today you've been alone with your son, right? Yeah. In, In human history, that has never happened. Literally where a woman is isolated with her baby. It's so normative to us today that there may be people listening who are like, what the hell are you talking about? But if if you think about in human history, the way that, you know, um, communities and, and tribal configuration was established, there was always, always, always um, other bodies around, right? And other resonant frequencies of those humans around and other support and eyes. And it would have been a grave signal of danger for a woman to have been alone with a baby, right? So now we're saying, to our nervous systems, adapt to that, <laughs> adapt to that signal of danger and be cool, <laughs> like be, be all right, be functional. And meanwhile, our nervous systems, I, I really deeply believe this, are, are very prone, hair trigger, um, prone to inflammatory responses that can lead to all sorts of things, whether it's intrusive thoughts uh, or vigilant anxiety or a sense of disconnection and flatness of mood. You know, and of course, I'm a b- big believer in pick the low hanging fruit, right? So it might be thyroid imbalance. It might be B12 deficiency, you know, it might be blood sugar stuff. Um, 
And it might also be that you are sensitive to the reality that we are not offering mothers what they deserve on a sociocultural level. And so it's pretty normative, almost expected that this kind of a struggle would attend that reality. And then nothing is wrong with a woman who feels that, right? Because when you enter into the medical model, the implicit admission is, oh, something is wrong with me. God, I I wish I could just feel all right. Yes. You know, and I, when I was sharing the story, I didn't share my thoughts, which are now, as you're talking, just coming back to mind. I would constantly, my mantra was like, I'm a horrible mom. Exactly. Because I was so tired. And because he wouldn't, couldn't latch and I was having trouble breastfeeding, there is an immense amount of, I don't, maybe shame would be the word, but this, this idea of, one, I'm a horrible mom. And the other thought was, I hate this. Like, and yes. I wanted this baby forever. So to want yes. a baby so badly and then have a moment where you're like, what did I do? Like, I abs- I'm a bad mom and I hate this. I love my baby, but I hate this. Yes. And what was so helpful to me was just knowing that other people had these thoughts. And it doesn't mean that you're a bad mom or it doesn't mean that like, I mean, there's something about allowing the space. Yes. You know, even saying it, I'm sure someone else is listening to this. I actually did another podcast where I shared a, a bit more about my experience and somebody wrote in and they were like, I'm so grateful that you said that you had a thought of what did I just do? <laughs> like, what did I just get in, like, get into being a yes. parent? Yes. Because I had that feeling and I had so much shame that I had moments of having that feeling. So, so is what you're saying here, I mean, this is very, very complex. We can kind of go in like a million different directions, but is it really coming down to just saying that, like, even with all the support, it is okay to have those feelings? It's more than okay. It's actually necessary, necessary. to ex- explore that terrain because it's in there, right? So in the narrative that you're describing about your postpartum experience, it's about mothering and it's about the baby. But the truth is there is a part of you, just like there's a part of me, just like there's a part of every person walking this earth today, I'm pretty sure, that feels that if I don't do life right, I won't be loved. Mm, yes. That is is something we carry around. And that is what motivates us to perform, right? And then when we our performance doesn't meet our own expectations, we get into contact with that feeling, right, of shame, of, of self-rejection, and we have our defensive mechanisms to paper it over, right? whether that's self-medicating or whether it's, you know, in doubling down on, on rigidity and control mechanisms and, you know, all the rest or faking it, you know, showing the world that we are something um, different. So until and if we come into contact with the part of us that feels fundamentally unworthy and unlovable and we heal that, and it's actually not complex to do so because all that is required is a commitment to turning towards that part of us and showing it acceptance and love. And remember I said like simple phrases, like it's okay. Mm. I free, I forgive myself, you know, like simple stuff that sounds so trite, but I think actually carries, um, like a neurobiological signature. You don't say those things when, when you're in an alarm state, yeah. you, you're, you're allowed to say and express you know, those kinds of sentiments when everything is fundamentally okay. And 
so it is this practice of healing the nervous system and changing your your own response to the ways in which you feel you have shown up um, differently than you you would have wanted yourself to show up in order to garner the love, attention, respect, regard, and a sense of worthiness that you think is survival level important, right? Because the child, when we first develop these programs, it is life or death, but then we carry them into adulthood and we become our own um, sort of, we, we self-domesticate as Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. says, like we, we are the ones who, who punish and reward ourselves in this parenting way. But really it's the parent who loves us unconditionally that we, we long for. And the surprise news is we get to provide that for ourselves. We're the only ones who can, in fact. And then we get rewarded with the experience of receiving unconditional love from others and giving it mm-hmm. chiefly to our own children, you know, um, where they don't, we don't hand down that same, you know, sort of template for how to be loved. We just give it no matter what. I love that. Well, Kelly, I could talk to you for another two hours. This has been incredible. Um, For those who want to learn more, pick up Kelly's book. It's called Own Yourself, The Surprising Path Beyond Depression, Anxiety, and Fatigue to Reclaiming Your Authentic Vitality and Freedom. So Kelly, they can pick the book up anywhere books are sold, right? I'm guessing? Yes. It's out on the 17th and it will be... uh really interesting to see, you know, cause my, with my first book, there was a lot of sort of, sort of grassroots support to, to sort of get this message and this possibility out into the world that maybe there's more to the story of our, our health and our relationship to chronic illness than we've been told. And, and can we reclaim, um, you know, and, and recentralize our power within. And I feel excited, you know, that this could be could be a meaningful toolkit for those who feel called to level up, called to strengthen and called to finally come into contact with what it is to be whole, you know, what it is to finally, as we've been saying, feel, feel okay. So yeah, I mean, if the message speaks to you, um, then, then please support it, gift it, you know, and let me do the heavy lifting of, of, you know, explaining the science behind this, this paradigm. I love it. Kelly, once again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's such an honor to connect to you and your community. I mean, you know, I'm an Uber fan. So <laughs> I think it's so important the ways in which our, our work um, dovetails and complements. And I've been really, really honored to, to know you and your beautiful, beautiful family. Oh, thank you. 